glad that you're here. I'm glad we're all here. We're here coming out of a week of great trauma, aren't we? Frustration and anger and hostility, perplexity, the senseless murder of nearly 270 people, nearly 300 people of the Soviet Union and the Korean airliner. All of us, I suppose, have run through the full range, range of frustration and anger and futility and perplexity and all of the feelings, all of the adjectives that have been used to describe that despicable act. Why should we be surprised? Why should the world act so surprised that people who publicize the fact that they are godless, hostile to the Bible, rejecting Christ, believing in ethical relativism, who do not believe in any moral absolutes, why in heaven's name should we be surprised that they're acting like men always act who believe nothing? How short-lived our memories. They're only behaving as people have always behaved who kick God out of their lives. You've forgotten the Berlin Wall. You've forgotten Budapest, 1958, Prague, 1968, Poland, Afghanistan, the attempted assassination of the Pope, the fury that the Soviet Union has caused in the Middle East through their puppet regimes in the PLO and Syria and Libya. Israel's not the problem in the Middle East. Russia is. Why should we be surprised that people who do not, leaders who do not care about their own people would care about others? The incredible extermination of over 20 million of their own people Millions more incarcerated in gulag archipelagos all over the Soviet Union. Many, many others uh, incarcerated in mental hospitals and institutions. Why should the Soviet Union act otherwise? They're following the pattern of their belief. I've been 12 times behind the Iron Curtain as most of you know, to preach and to visit, to encourage Christians there, and I read everything I can find about that part of the world. I've read numerous books about it. And I'm not an authority, and I know enough to know that they are going to behave the way they're behaving. Why in heaven's name cannot the leadership of our land and other free peoples of the world recognize that they're going to continue to behave in that manner? Make a difference how outraged we get verbally and how we ask for explanations and apologies. They don't care what their own people think. Why do we expect them to care what we think? Less than 10% of the population of the Soviet Union belong to the Communist Party. That nation has been captured, hijacked by a bunch of terrorists. Why should we be surprised that terrorists terrorize. That's their nature. That's their purpose. 
1971, a number of us in this group went into the Soviet Union. We carried 43 Bibles along with a lot of love and faith and hope to witness and encourage Christians who were there. And uh, most of you know the story. The 43 Bibles were confiscated at the airport in Moscow, and I was put in a little room for three and a half hours and questioned by from one to four people on why we were doing this and what do you think you can accomplish by doing this. And when we asked what would happen to the Bibles, the head of the customs at the Moscow airport said, the Bibles will be burned. Martha, my wife, asked a question. I thought when she asked it, they're going to send me to Siberia when they find out I'm married to her. <laughs> Here I'd been in that little room for three and a half hours, and I thought I was on my way to Siberia anyway. I could see myself shoveling snow out there somewhere. And Martha... Here I finally come out and there are the Bibles stacked over there and all of our people trying to get on the bus and get out of that airport. And Martha said to the head of the customs there at Moscow Airport, where they spoke fluent English, by the way, she said, you don't believe the Bible. You believe it's merely a collection of fairy tales. Why then, if it's only fairy tales, are you afraid to let it in? You can say amen here. I want to... I, It's a lot easier to say amen here than to stand there <laughs> and look at that woman who could uh, customs head there who could have thrown a shot put from here to the parking lot. <laughs> I thought Martha's discreetly getting rid of me here. <laughs> You put God out of your life, you rule the Bible out of your life, you burn its message to your people, what kind of behavior are you going to have? What will be the condition and the conduct of people who rule God out of their lives? Well, look in the Bible, it will tell us. And the story that I read from, the conclusion of a moment ago in the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Mark shows us exactly the condition and conduct of people who live without God and who close Him out of their lives and ask Him to leave town and to not bother them. Most of you are familiar with the story. I will touch the high points of it. This man living there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, on the eastern shores of the Sea of Galilee. And those of you who've been to Israel with us have visited that spot, and we've had a service there in a church, the ruins of a church that have been uncovered archaeologically where uh, the church was built to commemorate this experience that's recorded in the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Mark called the Gadarene Demoniac, this man who'd gone nuts, gone crazy. He'd flipped out. And they'd run him out of town. He was living out there in the caves. You can see a lot of caves there along the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee in Gadara, what was then Gadara. Here this man, because of his behavior, he couldn't get along with himself, so consequently he couldn't get along with anybody else. Doug showed once the Secretary General of the United Nations, made the statement, a man at war with himself will be at war with everybody else. That's true. A man at war with himself will be at war with everybody else. This guy couldn't get along with himself, so he couldn't get along with anybody else. They tried everything. 
Why, they got him to hear preachers and they sent him to jail and they got him into self-improvement classes and they preached to him and they locked him up and they got him to make New Year's resolutions and they got him to read all kinds of books, but it didn't work. He just persisted in hurting people, hurting himself, unable to get along with everybody else, so they just had to finally relegate him to the city limits, get out there and live in the cave. And here this guy is. Look at him. Picture him. Pitiful picture. Detested by everybody. Lonely. Living in the caves and tombs. And the Scripture says crying and cutting himself cutting himself, destroying himself, bent on self-destruction, paranoid. When Jesus showed up on the scene, he started accusing Jesus of coming to punish him. Look at this. You talk about incongruity. You talk about contrast. Here this man is killing himself, unable to get along with other people, living in the tombs, and here Jesus shows up and he accuses Jesus of coming to mess up his life. Crazy. What have you come to do to me, he said, Son of God? You come to hurt me and torment me? Pitiful picture of a man. Maybe at one time or another all of us have fallen into one or more of those categories. Unable to get along with other people. Hating ourselves. Destroying ourselves. Slowly maybe, but destroying ourselves nonetheless. Hostile. Paranoid. What do you come to do? Make me miserable? How many times have we heard words or synonyms of those words in the last few days describing the Russians? Hostile? Paranoid? Angry? Ruthless? The condition of man without God. But he's not the only man in this story. There's some others going to jump over part of the story where Jesus and this man do business together, and I want you to see what happened. For after Jesus healed this man, got his head and his heart on straight, life began to be different. They came out from town, and they saw that the man was sitting there, the Scripture says, clothed and in his right mind. Man completely changed. And everybody came out from town, and they got upset. The people from town got upset. Why did they get, get upset? Did they get upset because Jesus healed this man? No, that was to their advantage. They want citizens who are clean and upright and straight and walk around with their clothes on and pay their bills and do all the things that civilized people are supposed to do. They were not upset because Jesus healed the man. They were upset because Jesus used some property to save his soul. To save this man, Jesus used an objective demonstration, which we'll come to in a moment and explain why, and sent that evil spirit that the man felt was uh, 
possessing his life, sent that evil spirit into a bunch of swine, a bunch of pigs over there on the slope, and those pigs ran down into the sea and were drowned. And when the people saw this, they went into town and told everybody what had happened. And everybody in town came out there, and it was when they saw what had happened to their pigs. Not the man. They were all for what happened to the man. Sure, everybody's for religion. Everybody's for the church. Everybody's for people living a civilized, normal, friendly, happy way. But Jesus used some pigs as an object lesson to deliver this man from his spiritual nature of evil. And the crowd came out and said, Hey, wait a minute. Hit the road. We don't want you here. You talk about the condition and conduct of men without God? Here's the subtlety of it, and this comes a lot closer home to us. Jesus, pigs are more important to us than people. Property is more valuable to us than changed men. Leave. Don't upset our property. Don't touch our possessions. Surely we would not say that, would we? Pigs? More important than people? No. Wheat? More important than people? No. Technology? Pipelines? Computers? More important than human values? No, we wouldn't say that, would we? We don't believe in economic determinism. No, Marxists believe in that. One of the most verbal and vocal arguments I ever had was with our guide outside of Lenin's tomb in Moscow. We were standing there going into Lenin's tomb and we were talking about human values. And this highly educated, beautiful Russian girl and I were really talking. We weren't real loud, but we were really into it, so much so that the guards walked up to us and told us to be quiet. They told me to get my hands out of my pockets. They thought I had a bomb in there or something. So I got my, when they told me, I got my hands out of the po- my pockets. And we calmed down our talking. Do you know what we were discussing You know what we were disagreeing on? I was saying to her that people are more important than the institutions of government. People are more important, and I gestured toward the Kremlin, than this entire government or any government. Institutions are not sacred. People are. They are here to serve us, not we to serve them. Hit the road, Jesus. 
We want our property. We want our possessions. Surely we don't believe that. What about in the church? What about in the church? What about us? Let's bring it right down where you and I live and make value decisions and value judgments. What's the most important thing in the life of a church? Attendance? Buildings? Budgets? Programs? People. People. The strength of the church is not the strength of its budget or its buildings or its programs or its preacher. The strength of a church is getting Jesus Christ in touch with individuals, with people. It's interesting how much time we spend looking at the budget to determine whether or not we're successful. How's the budget? Very seldom hear anybody say, how many people have trusted Christ this year? How many people have been baptized into the fellowship of the church? Budget. Baptized more people than any year. The church is 34 years last year. Most of the conversation? Budget. So far this year, we've already baptized more than that. We'll baptize more than any year in the church's 35-year history. We praise God for that, or budget. With all love and tender care, my friend, you can have a great church without a big budget, but you don't have a church at all without people meeting Jesus Christ. And if you have people who are trusting the Lord and getting right with God and their lives being strengthened and helped, because of the message of Jesus Christ through whatever program and whatever buildings and whatever ministry, you don't need to worry about money. And the day that buildings and programs and budgets becomes number one in our concern, you can call it Trinity Baptist Church, but you better describe it as Ichabod, which means the glory of God is departed. Surely, we're not more interested in budgets and programs and properties than we are people. And the degree to which we are, we move into Gadara. And worse than that, Gadara moves into us. The condition and conduct of men who live without God People, people. Everybody's for missions. Sure, you've got to be for missions and mother to be a Baptist. Everybody. Amen. 
Everybody's for missions on paper. I'm talking about missions with people. Everybody's for missions until it begins to cost something. Everybody's for missions until it involves some of us doing and going and being. Gadara may not be as far away as we thought. Townspeople came out and said, we'd rather have pigs, property, and people's lives changed. And they kicked Jesus out of town because he said, people, by his actions, said people are more important than pigs. God help America if we don't make the same judgment. And God help this church or any church that gets its values mixed up. Now I want you to spend a few moments with me looking at the compassion and cure and commission of Jesus Christ, his compassion. i tell you the thing about him, so many marvelous things about him. We had the tongues of men and of angels, we couldn't say it. How he cares for us. Making a difference how unlovable we are doesn't make any difference how lonely we are. Makes no difference how far down on ourselves we are and how much we've cut ourselves and how many tears we have cried. He cares for us. And if I'm talking to someone here today, and I know I am, somebody here today who's about to give up on your life and you don't think anything's going to work out and you're discouraged and you're hurt, He loves you. And he, he may be asked to leave town because he loves so much, but he'll pay that price to help you. He cares for you. Write that down. Underline it in your heart. Let God himself engrave it upon your mind. Even when you feel other people are down on you or the church is down on you, or even God himself is... Listen, Jesus Christ came to say one great thing to you. He cares about you. He loves you. The compassion of Jesus Christ. And his cure. He didn't come to just give us some advice. He came to give us a new spirit. My soul, I already know to do better than I do. I don't need a whole lot more information about what I ought to be doing what I need is some inner inspiration to do what I already know, to live up to the ideals I already have, to live up to the hopes that I already possess. Oh, God, put some fuel inside of me. I don't need to be whitewashed on the outside. I need to be washed white on the inside and have a new heart put in me. I don't need remodeling. I need to be remade. I need a whole new foundation and motivation. He'll do that. And how does he do it? He does it through his cross. 
Listen, that Gadarene messed up guy would never have believed he was delivered from his problem if he had not seen it objectively demonstrated. If Jesus had just said to him, hey, you're okay, I'm okay, you're okay. Wouldn't have worked. Because he's the only one who is okay. I don't mean to digress too much, but I don't agree with that philosophy that I'm okay, you're okay, because I'm not okay, and you're not okay, and none of us will be okay until we get right with God. So Jesus didn't just uh, come up to him, to, the, to this man, and say, okay, you're better. Feel better? Think better. You needed desperate help. And Jesus knew that something desperate had to be done to demonstrate to this man his deliverance. And so he had that spirit go into the swine. Quickly, let me say a word about the evil spirit. It was not something that came upon a person and possessed them independently of their wills. The ancient world thought that, the, that evil spirits could come into an individual through any opening in their body. Now, Jesus knew that was not the case, but this man maybe didn't know that was not the case. The only way an evil spirit can take over a person is through the deliberate choice of that person's will. That's how evil takes over in our lives, through progressive decisions of our volition to choose evil instead of good. So it wasn't something that just kind of got him like he got caught the flu or something. He chose that behavior that precipitated in these shackles built around his heart and his mind and his life. It was the result of the process of disobedience in his life. So Jesus needed to do something dramatic to break those shackles and to know that he was, this man to know that he was delivered. So he used the swine as the objective verification of this man's deliverance. Look at them. There goes that evil spirit that's been driving you and destroying you and haunting you and hurting you. There it goes, driving those swine down into the sea. And the man saw it. You say, oh, that doesn't need to be done, my friend. It's, it's essential that it be done to you and to me. That's why the cross was a historical, objective demonstration of God's love for us. We would never have believed that God loved us, that God could love us and that God would come in the form of His Son to die for us on the cross and to be raised from the dead by the power of God. We would never have believed that if God Himself announced it from heaven. We had to see it with our own eyes or through the eyes of some eyewitness who passed the good news on to us. We would never have believed it if it had not historically occurred. Now you look at this perfect man, the only one who ever lived, become swine, sin for us. He who knew no sin that we, as the Scripture says, might be made the righteousness of God. Where? In Christ. Only in Christ. The objective demonstration of our deliverance is in that cross. This man's objective demonstration of his deliverance was in the death of those swine. Now I want to say a word about that death. 
about the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is representative of the failure of man at his best. Don't quit on me. Listen. The cross of Jesus Christ is the demonstration, the evidence of the failure of man, not at his worst, but at his best. The greatest government that ever existed on the, on the face of the earth, the Roman Empire. If greatness is to be defined, as most governments are, by efficiency. The Roman Empire and the most incredible religion ever revealed to man on the face of the planet until the fulfillment of the law and the prophets in Jesus Christ was Judaism. Man at his best politically and man at his finest religiously both combined to kill Jesus Christ. The cross is the evidence of the failure of man at his best. At our best, we cannot save ourselves. At our best, we cannot redeem ourselves. At our best, we cannot save others. At our best, we cannot do it. At our highest peak of efficiency and our highest attainment of morality, we're still a million miles from the grace and the power and the justice and the purity of God. We cannot do it. And institutions cannot do it. Here you see the failure of institutions to change life. Circumstances do not change men. Men change circumstances. So, oh, wait a minute, Buckner, environment is the chief cause of the problems of the world. Not so. How do you explain Adam? He lived in a perfect environment, no sin, everything, peaches and cream, breakfast in bed and two cars in every garage. And he made a disastrous choice, perfect environment. Man at his best, not good enough. Look at Noah. Experiences this incredible deliverance of God's grace. He rides out the storm in the ark of God's provision and when he lands safely, what is the first thing he does? Have a prayer meeting, build a tabernacle, worship God. He got drunk. You talk about environment, look at the disciples of Jesus. You think, all right, you just get in the right crowd and everything will be okay. How do you explain Judas? No man ever lived in a better environment than Judas. No man ever had finer friends than Judas, and yet he committed the heinous act of all time. It is the Spirit of God that changes conditions, not conditions change men. Changed men make a difference in institutions. The impotence of institutions to change life. This church won't. You can belong to it. You can belong to every church in town. You can be baptized repeatedly. You, you can memorize the Bible. Will not change your life. Will not change your nature. Any more than sleeping in a garage the rest of your life will make you an automobile. The environment won't do it. Institutions won't do it. 
It takes the intervening grace of God to change our nature and to make us into new creatures. And finally, his commission, his compassion, his cure, and his commission, he said to, those, that, to that guy, okay, this fellow said, hey, I want to go with you. Well, can you blame him for that? Leaving Nutsville over there and all those crazy people? I want to go with you. Get me out of here. Jesus said, no, no, I don't want you to come with me. Isn't that strange? Not too strange when you realize how many people try to hide in church and hide in religion and hide in Bible phrases and hide behind cliches. Won't touch the world, won't see it, won't get involved with it. Jesus loved the world. Where do we Christians get the idea that we're supposed to pull back from it and be pious and pure and isolated? Get in it, he said. Your salt, get in the meat and change it. Your light, get in the darkness and turn it on. Not called you to some sort of spiritual piosity and isolation. I commission you to get out there in Decapolis, in the ten cities. He doesn't subtract us from life. Some Christians think they're just so good they don't do anything. They're good for nothing. That's right. They do nothing, and they do it well. And we put stars by their name, and we give them banners. Jesus said, no, you're not coming with me. I want you to go to that town where you've been living, a town that ran me out. They'll let you in. They ran me out because of pigs. You go back in, and you help them see the grace and love of God. Go to it. He confirmed the cure with a commission to tell others. Now, this may surprise you. I don't think it will, but it may. Now, the person here this morning, maybe you haven't been in church in 20 years, and maybe you don't know anything, but John 3:16, you may not even know that. But they're not, maybe there are one or two people, probably not a soul here, who doesn't know more about Jesus Christ historically, intellectually, more about Jesus Christ than this man did. Not a person here who doesn't know more about Jesus Christ than did this man whom Jesus said, I want to send you to be a witness. I want you to go to others. I want you to tell these ten cities what I've done for you and what I'm doing in you. Go do it. Go do it. And he did. Later, biblical evidence confirms the fact that he went. And God used him as a witness in the ten cities. Wherever you and I fall in this picture this morning, this Bible story that's, out of, that's a slice out of life. He's the answer, isn't he? Trust him as your Savior. Commit your life to him and to his people and to his work. And share your witness with the whole world. That's his commission. That's his cure. That's his caring. Coming to focus in your living and in mine.
May we stand and bow our heads. And now, Lord, in this moment, may we not do what those people did. May we rather be like that man and respond to your word and open our hearts to your evidence and to allow your spirit at work in ours. We pray, dear God, that like the people of Gadara, we will not be. Open us to each other and to the need of a world that so desperately needs to hear your message. And remind us again this morning, dear God, that the answer to the problems of this past week and to the answer to the problems of every past week is not ultimately in politics or institutions or in the resolves of men, but in your spirit and your son at work in our lives and in our world. Bless this moment of invitation. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.